0: The House and Senate will both return to session Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Tuesday and immediately ran into trouble. At issue was H.R. 1629, the Fairness in Orphan Drug Exclusivity Act, a bill that would make a small change to the Orphan Drug Act to, in the words of the principal sponsor, close a loophole that could be used to block pharmaceutical competition and prevents innovative treatments for opioid use disorder from coming to market. The bill was introduced in the previous Congress and passed the House with bipartisan support, but never moved through the Senate. Hang on a moment. So its principal House sponsor, Democrat Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, introduced it again in the current Congress. In the previous Congress, the bill's principal Republican co-sponsor was Georgia Republican Buddy Carter. In the previous Congress, the bill was so non-controversial that not only did it pass under suspension of the rules, it passed by voice vote. That was not to be in this Congress, however. Why? Because Congresswoman Dean refused to allow Congressman Carter to co-sponsor her bill in this Congress. Why? Because Congressman Carter had voted against accepting the Electoral College votes of Arizona and Pennsylvania. Though she told Carter she would allow him to be a co sponsor of her legislation, she said she told him she, quote, was not comfortable co leading legislation with him, end quote. The result though though 36 Republicans voted for the bill, 168 refused to. And though the bill garnered 250 votes because it had been brought up under suspension, which requires a two thirds supermajority for passage, the bill failed. Majority Leader Hoyer promptly rescheduled the bill for consideration under regular order this week. Then House Republicans requested roll call votes on the remaining 13 bills that had been slated for the suspension calendar and the House Democrat leadership decided to go home for the night instead. So on Wednesday, the House Democrat leadership took those 13 bills and added three more and then wrapped them all together and offered a motion to suspend the rules and pass them all at one time. That motion carried by a vote of 349 to 74. Then the House passed four more bills by voice vote, and then the House passed the rule governing consideration of H.R. 2547, the Comprehensive Debt Collection Improvement Act, and H.R. 1065, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 2547, the Comprehensive Debt Collection Improvement Act. After considering three amendments, the House passed the bill by a vote of 215 to 207. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension. On Friday, the House took up H.R. 1065, the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act, and passed the bill by a vote of 315 to 101. And then they were done. This week in the House, they'll come back to work tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up 17 bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House is scheduled to take up nine bills under suspension. The House is also scheduled to take up H-Res 275, a resolution condemning the March 16, 2021 shootings in Atlanta. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House will take up three bills, H.R. 1629, the Fairness and Orphan Drug Exclusivity Act, H.R. 3233, the National Commission to Investigate the January 6 Attack on the United States Capitol Complex Act, about which we'll talk more in a moment. And H.R. 3237, the Emergency Security Supplemental to Respond to January 6th Appropriations Act, a bill to appropriate about $2 billion for improvements to security in the Capitol complex. The last vote of the week is expected no later than 3 p.m. As always, additional legislative items are possible. Last week in the Senate, they came back to work last Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Andrea Joan Palm to serve as Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Cynthia Minette Martin to serve as Deputy Secretary of Education. Then the Senate took up a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency relating to national banks and federal savings associations as lenders. That CRA resolution passed by a vote of 52 to 47. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to discharge the nomination of Chiquita Brooks-LaSure to serve as administrators of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services from the Finance Committee. New Mexico Democrat Martin Heinrich did not vote, so the Democrats were down a vote and should have lost this vote. But Republicans Susan Collins and Jerry Moran crossed party lines to vote in favor of the motion to discharge, so the vote was 51 to 48 in favor. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Ronald Stroman to be a governor of the U.S. Postal Service. And then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Amber Faye McReynolds to serve as a governor of the U.S. Postal Service. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Amber Faye McReynolds to serve as a governor of the U.S. Postal Service. Then the Senate voted to confirm Donut Dominic Graves, Jr. to serve as Deputy Secretary of Commerce. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That'll be a roll call vote on cloture on the motion to proceed to S-1260, the Endless Frontier Act. Now to the House Republican leadership change. On Wednesday of last week, the House Republican Conference, that is the official organization composed of every Republican member of the House of Representatives, gathered to decide the fate of the conference chairman. Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney. Cheney had come under fire for continuing to insist that the 2020 election was not stolen from Donald Trump. While she had survived a vote of no confidence earlier in the year by a better than two to one margin, she had since lost a great deal of support within the conference, including, importantly, among her fellow Republican leaders. Both Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise, who had supported her in the earlier no confidence vote, this time actively worked to remove her from the leadership. By the time the conference gathered on Wednesday morning, both McCarthy and Scalise had endorsed her removal and replacement. The meeting did not last long. Within half an hour, Cheney had lost her position. Minority Leader McCarthy set the election for her replacement for Friday morning. New York Representative Elise Stefanik, a liberal Republican from upstate New York who had become a favorite of Donald Trump's during his first impeachment when she defended him in the House hearings, had been campaigning for the job for weeks. She had the endorsement of McCarthy and Scalise, and most importantly, Trump. For quite some time, it looked like she might be the only candidate running to replace Cheney. On Thursday, having failed to convince any of his conservative colleagues to join the contest, Texas Representative Chip Roy tossed his hat in the ring, just to ensure Stefanik wasn't selected by acclamation. At a candidates' forum attended by about 60 House Republicans, indicating that by Thursday, most had made up their minds, He repeatedly pointed out that Stefanik was too liberal to properly represent the House GOP. In fact, Stefanik's Liberty score from conservative review is a paltry 36 compared to Roy's 100. And Stefanik's Heritage Action Rating is 84 compared to Roy's 98. But she had the Trump endorsement and Roy did not. And in the end, she won handily. Now to that national commission to investigate the January 6 attack. After months of on-again, off-again discussions and negotiations, House Democrats on Friday revealed the details of their plans for a 9-11 style investigative commission to look into the events leading up to the January 6 storming of the Capitol and said they planned to vote to establish the commission as soon as this week. When Speaker Pelosi offered her first proposal months ago, it was terribly lopsided. Their first proposal would have established a commission composed of 11 members, with seven Democrats and just four Republicans. Only Democrats would have been able to subpoena witnesses, and the subject matter would have been limited to just the events surrounding January 6th. Republicans pushed back hard, pointing out that the 9-11 commission was stocked with an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, and GOP co-chairman Tom Kane, the former governor of New Jersey, would do nothing without agreement from his Democrat co-chairman, Lee Hamilton former congressman from Indiana. They said it would not be right only to examine political violence on January 6th and that the commission should also be tasked to investigate the political violence surrounding George Floyd-inspired protests across the country last summer. The deal announced Friday was negotiated by Democrat Benny Thompson and Republican John Katko. Thompson is the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee and Katko is the ranking member of that committee. Interestingly, Minority Leader McCarthy said he had not seen the details of the agreement and so had not signed off on the deal. Under the terms of the agreement, the commission will be composed of 10 members equally divided, with five members to be selected by Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and five members to be selected by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader McCarthy. No member of the commission could be a current federal official. Democrats will choose the chairman of the committee Subpoenas will be issued on a bipartisan basis, either as the result of an agreement between the chairman and the vice chairman of the committee or by a majority vote of the full committee, which would require bipartisan buy-in. But the agreement says nothing about investigating last summer's violent protests. Now, an update on the Corrupt Politicians Act. On Tuesday, the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, chaired by Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar, held a markup session on S-1, the Corrupt Politicians Act. A markup session is just what it sounds like. That's where the committee members each have a copy of the draft bill in front of them, and they go through it to offer amendments, marking up the bill draft as they go along. Under the rules of the Senate, an amendment can only be adopted if it has majority support in a committee. But because the partisan balance in the Senate is currently 50 to 50, each of the committees has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. On the rules committee, there are nine Democrats and nine Republicans. Consequently, on the vast majority of the amendments that were offered during the course of the markup session, the two sides voted against each other, and the end result was the failure to adopt an amendment by a vote of nine to nine. Chairwoman Klobuchar got things started off by offering what's called a manager's amendment. A manager's amendment is typically offered by the principal sponsor of a bill and incorporates all the suggestions and edits he or she has heard from allies about how to make the bill even better. In this case, many state-level officials, including many, many Democrat state-level officials, had complained about the unreasonable deadlines contained in the draft proposal. There was just no way they could reach those goals, they said, and they insisted on being given more time. So Klobuchar used the manager's amendment to loosen those deadlines, among other things. And there were a lot of other things in that manager's amendment. It was 886 pages long, 10% longer than the original draft proposal but the manager's amendment couldn't get any GOP votes. They didn't think there was any way to make the bill better and they voted against the amendment. So it failed on a nine to nine vote as did most of the amendments offered by both sides. One amendment that did get through was interesting. It was offered by Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz and it would have modified a provision in the bill relating to allowing felons to vote after completing their sentences. Cruz thought that child molesters should still not be allowed to vote even after completing their sentences and he offered an amendment to that effect. Maine Senator Angus King, a former governor of the state, said he didn't think child molesters should be able to vote again either and voted for the amendment. Seeing he had made progress, Cruz then called up another amendment he had drafted to prevent murderers from having their voting rights restored after they completed their sentences. But the Democrats voted in lockstep against it and it failed nine to nine. At the end of the session, the committee considered a motion to report out the bill favorably to the Senate so that it could go to the floor but that motion failed on a nine to nine tie too. So now the only way the bill will come to the floor is if Majority Leader Schumer succeeds with a motion to discharge the bill from the committee. I don't expect we'll see that until and unless Schumer figures out a way to get around an expected geo filibuster. Now to immigration. On Tuesday of last week, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona finalized a decision to reverse a Trump administration policy that prohibited illegal immigrant college students from receiving federal relief grants meant to help pay for regular expenses like food, housing, and childcare during the pandemic. Instead, under Cardona's new policy, colleges and universities receiving the grants would be allowed to distribute tens of billions of dollars in federal pandemic relief grants to all students, no matter what their immigration status or even whether or not they qualify for federal student aid. Finally, to infrastructure, President Biden entertained congressional Republicans in multiple White House meetings last week. On Wednesday, he met with the big four, Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Minority Leader McConnell and House Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader McCarthy. The following day, he met with several senators of both parties to discuss his plans for infrastructure spending. Republican leaders, Republican leaders made clear their own red lines for the negotiations. They will not provide votes, they said, to modify the terms of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That means they will not agree to vote to raise corporate and personal tax rates, as Biden has proposed in order to pay for his $4.1 trillion wish list. Instead, Republicans said, the bill should pay for the spending with user fees. At this point, it looks like we're talking about two different bills here. The first, a bill to authorize and pay for what most of us would consider infrastructure spending, would be paid for and would have bipartisan support. Republicans have already offered a bill costing out at $568 billion, and McConnell indicated he thought Senate Republicans might be willing to go as high as $800 billion in spending as long as corporate and personal taxes didn't go up. That would leave a second, roughly $2 trillion bill that Democrats would have to pass on their own presumably using the reconciliation process. But that means that every single Democrat would have to agree to the spending bill, and that's not yet a done deal. West Virginia's Joe Manchin is making life difficult for his Democrat colleagues on this and other issues and has not signed off yet on this plan. In fact, I think that's why Biden is taking meetings with Republicans. It's because he's not sure he can get 50 votes from the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate. Stay tuned. There's a lot more work to be done on this front. And that's our Washington report for this week.